This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 10. How do Roman emperors stay in power? This is the second aside episode, meaning that for this episode, I didn't have enough time to put together a whole narrative episode. Today, I'm going to discuss how the Roman emperors held on to their power, and why even crappy emperors can reign for 15 or more years. In modern times, we live under relatively stable democracies. It's rare for elected officials to be rejected or removed from office because they've lost the support of the people. The governments are built upon systems that we've all agreed upon, and there are strict rules and precedents set to ensure that everyone is satisfied with the elections and the elected officials, more or less. The dominant move for dissatisfied individuals is to simply wait out the term of the elected official in question and move on with their life. Of course, we've seen in recent times examples of this not being entirely foolproof. On January 6, 2021, the US Capitol building was invaded in an attempt to change the outcome of the national election. This is the most obvious example in recent times that I could think of that shows how even a democracy in the modern era can break down if there's enough pressure on it. If you get enough people together with enough weapons, any government decisions could be overthrown. Regardless of what you think about January 6th, the point is, if it had been successful, the entrenched political system would have been subverted, so the system just isn't perfect. Which is fine, but the question remains, if at any given moment we could just storm the capital to push any agenda we want, why don't we? Well, the political system is set in rules, regulations, and precedent. There are theoretically no surprises, and everyone has agreed that the system for electing officials works, so we will accept the results of elections and just deal with them. People are more inclined to simply wait out an elected official than storm the capital every time something they don't like gets done. But now that we've established this, why is it that the Roman emperors aren't overthrown super quickly all the time? After all, there was no rigid institution for choosing emperors, and there were no rules for their reign like we have in our modern democracies. They don't have the same types of rules, regulations, and precedents. And how is Nero able to reign for 14 years? The first order solution is that the Roman Empire is a military dictatorship. So for the most part, the Roman Emperor has the biggest military force anywhere in the Empire at any given moment, meaning that rebellions can't really be launched. But this isn't an entirely satisfactory explanation because, after all, the Roman Empire is massive, so local governors would have the power to rebel just about whatever they wanted. And additionally, the city masses would be able to overthrow their emperor regardless of military presence if they put their mind to it. There's just far more of them. There's obviously more at play. And it's relatively simple to state that for the most part, people just wouldn't care enough to revolt unless they absolutely had to. So it was the job of the emperor's administration to make people not absolutely have to, even if things got really dicey. The simplest way to get people to not revolt when the emperor screws something up, or even when they don't, is to establish trust with the population, with the army, and with the senate, etc. Establishing trust at the outset of your reign without doing anything in terms of administration or leadership by simply proving your right to rule is called legitimacy. And that's the main issue I wanted to tackle today. I'll be talking about various ways in which the emperors specifically highlighted at the outset of their reign how they're going to rule, establishing an initially high amount of support and goodwill among the people. And there's many explicit and implicit factors going on here, and it might sound a bit obvious as we get into it, but 
like the last episode of Bad Emperors, I think it's important to lay everything out there. For those of you who are more familiar with the British monarchy, for example, you'll know that there are specific rules for choosing a new monarch there. There is like a flowchart that you have to follow for determining who will become the next head of state. And everybody knows at any given point who the next several dozen people in line for the throne are. So there are no surprises, no shocking developments, everyone knows what's going to happen, which can make transitions of power much smoother. What may shock you is that over the whole course of the Roman Empire, there was never a system of this manner. We've already seen the ascension of a couple of random emperors in the year 69, but it may still be surprising to hear that there's absolutely no structure for determining who will be the next emperor. There was even no official policy about passing the emperorship to children, for example. The fact that many dynasties exist is simply a product of the time, and we'll get into that in a bit. If you'll recall the episode that I did on the end of the Republic, you'll know that the Roman Empire, as an institution, was created by Augustus out of the ashes of the Republican system that he murdered. Also, you'll know that for his entire life, Augustus pretended like he wasn't an autocratic dictator. This attitude was carried on for the rest of Roman history, where the king-fearing Romans preferred to pretend that they didn't have a monarch. Simply, the emperor was someone who held several relevant titles at once and led the largest armies in the empire. For one thing, this would have made it easier to avoid revolts since the emperor wouldn't be singularly responsible for everything since, at least at this point in history, the senate is still playing an important role. So no doubt, some blame and hatred would be directed towards the senate instead of the emperor. For another though, the emperors didn't have the ability to call upon an entrenched and agreed upon title and system for the emperorship, like you would have for the Queen of England, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, or the President of the United States, as different as all those positions are. Every time you have a new emperor ascending to the throne, it's an entirely different experience because there's no entrenched obligations for them to hold or powers that they have to enact. They can do whatever they want. And each emperor served in their own manner and exercised different powers. So it must have been difficult to transition between new emperors, and especially transitioning to the young emperors like Caligula and Nero. Especially in the early empire, the full power of the emperor was not fully realized and each new emperor experimented with what they could and couldn't do. And so, by the time we get to the middle and late empire, the emperorship has completely changed beyond the handful of republican roles that they had at the outset of the empire. Each ruler had their own agenda and pet projects, so their power was exercised simply in the realms that was important for them. Claudius took an interest in securing Britain for the empire, so the role of the emperor in the military greatly expanded with this decision. Beforehand, the emperor had next to no influence in individual military matters, but now starting with Claudius, the emperor was on campaign. If you'll recall from the episode on the Julio-Claudians, I talked about how Claudius became quite bold with how he used his power. This may have been disturbing to some in Rome, and it may have scared people to think that Nero might even expand further on his power. In the end, Nero's power went into just stealing awards for himself, but since each new emperor was ruling in their own manner, and there was no rules, no one knew what to expect. And so you can imagine that the senators and governors, other important individuals, would be wary of new emperors coming onto the scene. This would have been especially scary since there's literally no bounds of what they can do, and there's nothing you could do to stop them. So, to ease the minds of important individuals, new emperors would typically exploit any advantage they had that would convince the populace that their rule was a continuation of a previous good quality rule. 
if you could convince everyone that you're the next Augustus and that you'll do everything like Augustus did, then people would probably worry less because now they know what to expect. And the best and simplest way to appease everyone is to overtly or subtly announce that you're the logical continuation of the previous administration. Like, for example, you're the son of the previous emperor. And so that's why the first piece of legitimacy that many emperors would be able to exploit is familial ties to previous reigns, whether real, fake, or just exaggerated. We'll see going forward the role of formal adoption in crowning emperors, but for now, we've seen multiple times how emperors would be able to ascend solely based on family ties, even if it's just a rather random family tie. As far as the Julio-Claudians went, none of them were direct sons of the previous emperor. They were random nephews and uncles and grandsons, and it really, there should not have been a universe in which Caligula or Nero became emperor without this fact. To be honest though, Claudius and even Tiberius should not have become emperors if they did not have this family tie. At the time of the death of Augustus, there was no doubt some general or administrator in the empire who could have continued the high quality reign of Augustus, but this was not even considered. So why is family so important that the subpar reign of every emperor after Augustus was accepted and even downright terrible emperors can be chosen? Nobody really thought that Caligula could be a great emperor. People were happy when he ascended to the throne because Tiberius was dead and this was a new face, but that would have been no one's first choice if he wasn't related to Tiberius and Augustus. But let's consider the fact that after Augustus reigned for four decades, his family was entrenched as the royal family. His descendants and those on his wife's side were all prominent generals in the empire. And naturally, having a connection to the emperor is good for your career, so those related to him will have an unnatural boost to their career. People related to the emperor will get titles and powers and governorships early, which means that they can advance in their career far beyond anyone else. It also makes sense that the emperor would know you personally, and so it would be logical to transition you into becoming the next emperor, and this is the case with Tiberius. You can also appreciate that a given emperor would probably like to pass power on to their son or daughter because they know them well, and they've been able to train them since birth for the role of the emperorship. And if the emperor dies when he's in his like 70s like Augustus did, his child will likely be in their 40s or older, the perfect age to become the supreme magistrate. They're experienced and capable, but they're not super old that they won't reign for a while. If you're 40-something, you could reign for another 30 years. So it's kind of like the perfect age gap between a father and a son or a daughter. So it's just convenient. They'll just happen to be the best choice. The more nuanced reason that random generals won't be chosen to be the next emperor, usually, is that if the current emperor makes it clear that some general is the next emperor, then the first problem you may run into is that the descendants of the sitting emperor may feel entitled to the role as emperor, and so they'll get spiteful, and they'll be relatively influential, so that could lead to a civil war on that front. But if we consider a case where the emperor doesn't have any kids, they'll be singling out an individual general to become the emperor. And the problem is that is that you may have other generals who feel as though they should have been the choice to become emperor so they could become bitter and spiteful and if they are a capable general who could have been a good choice for emperorship that means they probably have armies under the control probably means that they're charismatic and influential meaning they probably have what it takes to start a civil war secondly if a given emperor has declared that one of his generals will succeed him 
then that general is immediately given a sort of imperial authority. What I mean by this is that the general is no doubt one of the most competent and talented men in the provinces, like I said before. If the sitting emperor says that someone else is ready to be the next emperor and the provinces agree with him, then it only makes it easier for that general to launch a revolt whenever they want, since the support for their ruling, it already exists. The Romans would largely be able to avoid this problem, but the larger issue is that of pissing off other good candidates. If you don't believe me that this is an issue by the way, just wait until next episode when we get to good old Otho when exactly this happens. So in this way, it's again convenient to pass power to the emperor's children. The emperor would not be snubbing anyone because the question of succession is addressed by blood. It's an arbitrary but objective qualification. And so this could be better than a subjective assessment of ability of the generals in the provinces. I think everybody could agree that it would be better to appoint the best person to become the emperor, but we just probably couldn't all agree on who that would be. And so civil war may be the result of that disagreement. It's best not to make people pick sides when it comes to choosing the next emperor of the Romans. In any event, Appointing the prince or princess to be the new emperor is convenient because they grew up in the palace, in the imperial administration, cultivated by the sitting emperor. The advisors, aides, freedmen, and staff of the emperor would personally know the emperor's child, and would no doubt be very happy about the prospect of keeping their positions when a new emperor is appointed. Recall that most emperors would reign in entirely different fashions, enacting different powers, and so not only would new emperors entirely replace staff with people loyal to them, obviously, but they may end a part of the imperial administration or royally screw some things up, and most administrators would probably just like to keep things on the right track. And so the prospect of having an entirely new emperor would make these administrators nervous for the empire and for their jobs. And so to fix this, the emperor would cultivate their child to keep the imperial system the way it is. So that once they ascend to the throne, it would appease the rest of the imperial court, meaning there will be no challenges for power. Random generals would bring in their own way of ruling, which is needlessly risky. Augustus and the rest of the Julio-Claudians were obsessed with putting family members on the throne because it was convenient. It would project outwards to the populace that imperial administration wasn't going to change from the system you knew and loved with Augustus. So yes, the dynasties make sense. And this is why blood dynasties would dominate monarchies in Europe until modern democracies took hold. And even then, let's just say it's not a coincidence that there have been two George Bush US presidents. The familial ties go far beyond the simple father-son or cousin or nephew connections, further than you may think. It's not uncommon for close individuals to a family to ascend to power, and essentially retroactively make themselves a part of the family. Especially in the later history of the Roman Empire, especially in the Byzantine era, you may have leaders of the imperial bodyguard ascend to the emperorship, and then they'll claim a relation to the previous emperor. They would have known them well, they would have been personally connected to them, but they will maybe claim a legitimate blood tie to them. And so on one end of this exaggeration or faking spectrum, we have the Julio-Claudians, where none of the Julio-Claudian emperors wanted the man who would succeed them to succeed them. It was all just happenstance and their last pick, they ran out of options or they didn't even choose the person that was going to come next. But every single one of the Julio-Claudian emperors would play up their connection to the previous emperors for the benefits that they would gain in terms of respect for their administration. My favorite example of this is that Livia, the wife of Augustus, 
died in 29 AD during the reign of Tiberius, while he was cowering away in his villa. No honors were posthumously given to her, but Claudius, over a dozen years later, when he was emperor, would deify Livia. Livia became a god, no different than Caesar and Augustus themselves. Claudius was playing up the fact that he was directly related to the great Livia for the press, because she was now a god. Despite the fact that she despised him and refused to give him a chance in politics, and it was pretty much her death that allowed him to start a career. They didn't like each other personally, but he still made her a god because it was good press. Obviously though, there's more going on than just the family connection or connecting yourself to previous good reigns. How does Galba, for example, come to and hold on to power? Well, the simple answer is that he didn't really hold on to power, he immediately fell flat on his face. Before tackling that, how was Galba able to ascend so rapidly and break the streak of Julio-Claudians? Nero had reigned for over a decade, so by 68 AD, the promise of continuing the rule of Augustus or Claudius was obviously not fulfilled, so he had lost the goodwill. Nobody believed in the ruling dynasty anymore, and not to mention, there were no Julio-Claudians left. When Caligula was a terrible emperor, he was killed and was replaced by Claudius. The dynasty remained, but there was no Claudius to appoint now. Finally, the main grievances with the emperor came from the provinces. And I talked before about how provinces were the only place for a revolt to realistically take place um, against Nero at this point. So the provinces had to revolt, but they had no descendant of Caesar to pick. So they turned to the most logical choice. I think the troops in Germania had the right idea, trying to hail Lucius Virginius Rufus as emperor, since he seemed to be highly competent and charismatic, and he probably could have been a better emperor than Galba, so why did he not become emperor, aside from the fact that he said no? Why did we end up with Galba who sucks? Well, the fact that Rufus was maybe a better choice than Galba because of just, you know, personal ability is beside the point. Galba was chosen because he was old, wise and experienced. The role that Galba played, the character that he portrayed to the Roman Empire, was that of a man who promised stability and measured rule. I keep mentioning how things are convenient or simple, and that's what makes them effective. Well, in this case, the thing that is convenient is to appoint the most experienced man around. It likely would have been too radical to put a powerful individual like Rufus onto the throne, even if he would have ruled well. And certainly, it would have been unthinkable to appoint Otho at this point. What everyone needed, simply put, was the opposite of Nero. And that's the crux of the argument. That was the character that Galba was portraying. He was old, he was wise, and he was experienced. Nero was a bad emperor. He was young, naive, and incapable. And so, the way in which Galba and Vespasian, especially, would claim their right to rule is in contrasting themselves with Nero. It would make the transition easier because everyone was upset and frustrated. They hated Nero, they despised him, so now we have someone who's willing to act as the opposite. I'm more than excited to make a sequel to this episode later, once we talk about Domitian, since the dynamic that we have here plays out more obviously with Domitian and then Nerva and Trajan. Nero was young, naive, and reckless. What Galba and Vespasian did was show the world that they are measured, cultured, and wise. 
that they're older men who could dig Rome out of the ditch that Nero had drove them into, and that's what made people flock to them even if Rufus was more capable. And Galba was 73. There's no way he would have reigned more than a couple years anyways. Why should we put that man on the throne to stabilize things? Well, it's because he'd do the opposite of what Nero did. So even before running their first piece of legislation, or addressing the Senate, or leading an army, a brand new emperor, or a brand new claimant to the throne, has many different avenues to go down to establish themselves as the best new emperor, and pave the way for a successful and happy reign. Emperors will play up a positive connection to previous administrations, they'll exploit any relation they have to events and individuals that will positively resonate with the people, the generals, and the other influential individuals. Finally, emperors will also make it clear that their administration will depart from the pitfalls of previous emperors and their administrations. Commonly, bad emperors will be followed by individuals who diametrically oppose them, for better or worse. In Galwa's case, for worse. He opposed Nero in such an extreme manner. You could argue that in the way that Nero was flamboyant and excessive, Galba was cheap and lame, and that's what made the Praetorian Guard turn on him. We'll get to that next episode. Bad emperors would be followed by their opposites, since the most important qualification for a new emperor after a disastrous period like the reign of Nero or the year 69 AD was that they could fix the problems that the crappy emperor created. This is presented really clearly in the year of the four emperors. I know we only really covered Galba so far, but briefly, it'll go as follows. Galba is the opposite of Nero, so he's the logical man to choose to become emperor. Otho is the opposite of Galba, and something like Nero. He's young and naive, so we've almost flipped back. Vitellius is also the opposite of Galba, in other respects. He's inept, but he's not young and naive like a reckless Nero or Otho. And then Vespasian would be the opposite of Otho and Vitellius, almost looping back to Galba. He was measured, cautious, and competent. It gets a bit confusing that we have Otho and Vitellius pretty much appearing at once, but honestly, viewing it in this way has made it make a bit more sense why these men were chosen, since Vitellius was incapable and a bad governor. Why did he become emperor? Otho was really young and connected to Nero. How is that possible? Well, it almost makes sense if you think of it like a, like ping pong, it's bouncing back and forth. We have Nero, he sucks. We have Galba, he sucks. Let's go back to Nero. That sucks. Let's go back to Galba, but something different, and we end up with Vespasian. It would have kept ping-ponging until we ended up finding a good candidate. This all seems kind of obvious that I lay it out like this, doesn't it? To say, to be a good emperor, you can connect yourself to previous good emperors, but it's nice to get it all out there, and maybe the way that we've arrived at these conclusions has given us a deeper insight into how the imperial systems would have worked and the decisions of individual emperors. Maybe Galba's decision to not pay donatives to the Praetorian Guards was a specific decision to distance himself from Nero, who would hand out cash at any given moment. Maybe that's how we can understand that decision that otherwise I don't understand at all. This is certainly a pretty simple approach to all this, and there's certainly much more nuance and many other factors at play here. But this was a fun introduction for us into how Roman emperors stayed in power and how they projected their power and right to rule their legitimacy outwards. I feel as though I should be announcing this pretty much every episode, but this was simply an off-the-cuff, shallow analysis of this aspect of power. I'm interpreting the books that I've read on the topic. 
There's much more to talk about here, and we'll be getting back to it soon enough, definitely after the reign of Domitian, and maybe again after we talk about Otho and Vitellius. For now though, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description and in the description of this episode. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I'll respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student, who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once. In two weeks, I'll actually get to talking about Otho and the Year of the Four Emperors, hopefully. I'll see you then.